If you're a coach of any grade, then you've got to be on coachingtoolbox.co.nz. It's got skills, drills, warm-ups, and even strength and conditioning programs. And the best thing about it is, it's free. Coaching Toolbox, online and Facebook. Check it out. Welcome everyone to the Coaching Toolbox podcast. I'm your host, Scott Waldron, aka Scooter. Each week, we're going to be talking to people from all levels of the game to give you an insight into coaching, along with plenty of tips and tricks to help you with your coaching journey. Today, we're lucky to have Jamie Tout with us. You may not recognise the name, but you'll know the teams he's worked with. New Zealand Cricket, the Pulse Netball, Black Sox, Hurricanes, and the current strength and conditioning coach of our mighty Black Ferns. He also features on our very own coaching toolbox, plus many more resources. So let's meet the man behind the name. 20 years experience, and you've been involved with Black Ferns, Hurricanes, uh, cricket teams, netball teams, rugby league, so it's not just rugby. Um, so you certainly uh, do bring a lot of uh, experience and a lot of different ways of looking at things, and you think that's helped you along your, your career path? Oh, mate, 100%. I think that's something that I'll continue to do, and whether it's uh, netball or whether it's horse racing, there's, there's ideas that come out of all industries that you can apply to, to different sports. I think that's a, a good mindset to have is that when you go into any environment, whether it's uh, any of those things I've talked about, if it's a high performance environment, there's things there to learn. And it could be, uh, it could be the structures, it could be uh, how to deal with pressure, um, it could be in how you monitor wellness and, and performance that I think we're getting a lot better at is trying to work out if uh, something happens in a physical context, does it have a technical and tactical outcome as well? So trying to work out that if A and B happen is C more likely, it's something that I can take from the corporate world or looking at the stock exchanges in the example, you sort of know there's patterns. I think in sport we're getting better at recognising patterns and how we can use data to, to be better. But also like just in, in, in uh, simple things like warm-ups and games, like there's nothing to say that really good footwork and handling drills that come from netball can't be applied to rugby and vice versa. Absolutely. So just for our listeners so they get an understanding, so what, what current roles are you involved in at the moment? Current roles I've got is uh, the strength and conditioning coach lead for the New Zealand women's rugby team, the Black Ferns, at a 15s level. Uh, also looking after our contracted uh, referees group, and they're an interesting animal because quite different to the Black Ferns 15s because they're dealing with a, generally an older demographic. Uh, they're having to uh, exercise at high intensity and make really clear decisions or, in fact, non-decisions sometimes as well. Uh, I'm acting as a resource coach for, for Rugby Smart and uh, New Zealand Rugby. Then outside of that, uh, working on a couple of other cool projects with VX Sport where we do a lot of athlete monitoring around 30 different countries around the world with a lot of different sports, looking at heart rates and speeds and impacts and how that affects game performance. Right, that's some uh, pretty impressive credentials there and uh, you're doing some outstanding stuff for those teams. I mean, that, that Black Ferns program is just seems to be getting bigger and bigger and the way you're really involved with uh, these athletes and transforming them from rugby players into actual athletes, it must be quite rewarding for, for yourself. It's hugely exciting. Like the, the growth of women's rugby, um, not just in New Zealand, but globally, is just, it has to be the fastest growing demographic of rugby in the world currently. It's, we're seeing some astronomical changes, not just physically, but just in the way the athletes are going about things off the field as well. And I think um, Glenn Moore talks about professionalism. It's not dictated by money, it's dictated by attitude. and you want to stink, stink of professionalism. You want to be the most professional you can, and that's not what you get paid. It's, it's how you go out and approach things. 
I think that's probably the fundamental change that we're seeing. And we're really fortunate within New Zealand rugby currently to have uh, awesome support from the provincial unions. And it's the first time uh, ever that every provincial union now has been funded at the Farah Palmer Cup teams to have a women's academy. Now that means we can get access to good resource coaches, we can get access to uh, good strength and conditioning coaches, more access into the gyms. And I think as a, as a byproduct of having access to those things and those doors opening, we're, we're seeing a, or engineering a better athlete. And you've gone from uh, athletes who, who still have to work, and they still have to study, but they're now been able to uh, compare themselves alongside uh, the men's academy and, and get access to scrummaging against the guys or getting uh, a, a more of an awareness around what is required. And I think that's probably sometimes where we don't probably fall back to enough and, and just give us a reference point. You don't know what you don't know. So when you're training, you can go out there and, and run seven kilometres at a slow pace and think you're doing the right thing. But the reality is in rugby, we don't do anything at slow pace. It's very intermittent, it's high energy. And just being aware of those sort of things, we're seeing a growth in the athlete, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. And the game is just becoming so much more enjoyable to watch because they are improving their skills, they're improving their fitness, and they're you know, able to play 80 minutes of quality rugby. So you know, um, the work you're doing is certainly certainly showing off, and I think everyone's um, benefiting, the viewer and the, the coaching staff as well. So let's take it right back. So where, where did Jamie Tout start? What got him into strength and conditioning? Mate, to be all honesty, I think I was a week, I think... Yeah, it would have been a week to 10 days uh, before starting university. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know if I was going to university or not. Got a phone call out of the blue from the Australian College of Phys Ed. So at the back end of that in uh, 1999, 2000, I moved to Wellington and went from being a, a personal trainer where I was dealing with 80% Joe Public and maybe 20% weekend warriors. Uh, I started specialising in speed development. And speed development, I, I wrote the, the Accelerate training programs and uh, specialising in speed and agility for sport. My client base, if you like, turned around from uh, working with those, those uh, user groups, I guess, to being about 80% semi-pro or pro athletes and 20% Joe Public. Uh, 2004-05 has luckily got picked up by um, Academy of Sport Central, now High Performance Sport New Zealand, and opened the door to me to, to start working in professional sport. If you're lucky enough to have a strength and conditioning coach with your teams, so a lot of first of teams these days, you know, now have them, and, and clubs, some clubs are set up with their gym and that, and it's about how how do you find it best to work in with those coaches, and especially around the um, different stages of the season. Like, how important is it to have a, a, a quite a big influence pre-season, perhaps, rather than in-season, and how how do they can best work through that. So, from you. What is the ideal involvement that you feel um, pre-season for a, a trainer? Yeah, it's, mate, it's, uh, it's a little bit different, I guess, how I'm going to answer that for a secondary school environment to maybe where a professional team is now because I, I will go to secondary schools first because we've seen a huge amount of uh, growth in the way that uh, the programs are evolved. They, they, they're operating at a level now that is really coherent. They've got... Um, really a lot of structure around how secondary school rugby teams are, um, uh, are organised these days. And you're dealing with an athlete who, generally speaking, if they're, if they're good in the first 15, you might also find that they're in the first 11 cricket team or they're, they're playing rugby league and rugby union. So trying to manage those athletes' workloads is, is, a, is a massive thing. And I guess what we, what we see is that 
Um, they're usually bouncing from one season to another, and it's just as dangerous at that level, I guess, to be overtraining as it is undertraining. So trying to find that 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 balance around playing sport and being involved in the school and looking after your academics and health and wellness, it's a it's a it's a big deal. So I don't generally take the approach to over-specialise too much in what I, what I prescribe, particularly at that level. You want to try and expose them to all different modalities of training throughout the year. And yes, it's important to lay a base of strength and endurance, but then during the season, trying to dabble a bit in all different things. So whether it's speed or whether it's power, flexibility, um, coordination of, of uh, hand-eye drills and things like that, we try and spread them sporadically through the year and trying to create those stimuluses going all the way rather than sort of just um, over specializing too much yeah absolutely and I, like i've certainly noticed from my days of, of high school you know it was rugby and then you did you had your, your summer sport but now there's so many different options for kids and they're playing so many different sports i guess you're correct it's about understanding how much does that individual actually need and you know what should you be prescribing what's your thoughts around um actual strength training with uh, high school students should is that a time that they really need to focus on on trying to get some gains or is it just technique development and sort of just you know slowly developing through what's what's your thoughts Oh, no, mate, I definitely think it's a time to uh, get involved in strength training. And I think because we've got um, academies now for both women and men uh, straight out of school, we've often seen the, the situation where some players come out of school, they, they may skip the club environment and go straight into an academy. Now, when you arrive at an academy, there is a level of expectation there now that you, you do know the fundamentals and you are prepared to lift. And I guess developing that resilience as you f- find your way through the last two to three years of school and in understanding the basic movement patterns of the big primary movements and your squatting and your uh, your benching and as much as anything, lifting your own body weight is a, is a big one. If you can be proficient at those things as you go through your last few years of school and, and find that mix and, and become stronger, then it's only going to be a, a benefit when you go into those academy environments and get a leg up. So I think, again, in New Zealand, we've got a... Um, a really diverse population group and we've got kids developing at very different rate, uh, rates from chronological to, to developmental age. You've got uh, a massive spread still and you've got kids uh, who are, and you see in the first 15s and I'm sure when the under 20s run out this year again, you'll just be blown away how big some of those athletes are and you put them alongside uh, the kid that's um, uh, potentially um, in the under, under 80, 80 grade but you've got a kid alongside him who's 120 kilos. And I think that's something we're, we're quite good at at New Zealand Rugby is providing opportunities for those different spreads of athletes to keep involved in the game. When's the time for these high school students to lift heavy or do you think it's, they still need to just restrict a little bit and not go too big? Or you know, can by the time they hit 17, 18 in their last couple of years, you know, can they start going heavy? Yeah, look, it's all about the, the training age as well. So I think where we should start, and this can start at a very young age, like. In the new uh, Rugby Smart warm-ups, there's a lot of stuff in there that's about controlling your body, about getting up off the deck and rolling and rocking and uh, getting up off the ground as quick as you can. So that's all about lifting your own body weight. And that sort of stuff can start, like I say, at a very young age. What I'd be um, reluctant to do is if you find a, a big 17-year-old kid in your environment who hasn't lifted before, then it would make no sense to that get them to jump into a full-strength program and work towards those high... Um, high power type movements that are move, 
lifting really heavy weights a small amount of times. What we're looking for is to try and develop a training age where consistently over a period of 12 or 18 months, they're learning the, fun the, the fundamental movements. And then you're moving back into that from endurance to strength to power phases. So it's, it's not really based on age so much as it is how long have you been consistently training. So I think, uh, again, we're becoming much better at identifying that because taking it back one step, male and females, we, they do grow and mature at different rates. And if you look at things like a, a peak velocity curve of height is a really good example of where uh, female athletes will tend to have that spurt a little bit sooner and male athletes a little bit later. But there's periods of, of growth in those athletes where as they're growing at a rapid rate, they're not as coordinated because their muscles and bones sort of aren't really aligning and matching up. And there's that feeling that a sense of being uncoordinated. So during that sort of those really high growth periods, it's, it's important that we don't try and overdevelop the muscle necessarily, but let them go through and get coordinated and then go through that period of getting that muscle stronger and lifting faster and, and, and heavier as they go through that stage. Yeah, like I when I left school, I found uh, my first sort of trainer um, had been doing a lot of Olympic lifting rather than the straight bench and squatting. And I, I certainly felt that, you know, a progression through that sort of helped me slowly develop my strength from there. Um, you know, how do you, how do you see sort of those core lifts, say bench, squat, compared to the Olympic lifting around that high school age? Yeah, well, I guess, look, I'm, I'm, I think the Olympic movements are important. I think there's, there are things that around those Olympic type movements that do show a high level of technique and coordination. And that's probably uh, maybe where, you, where you're going with as well, is that since there's a high lift of a technical component to it, it does teach them to do it correctly and be really aware of the body. And you see it at the highest level, the gains that they make, the, the technique, just like it would in golf or tennis or kicking a goal, plays a massive part. And you, and you do have to coordinate those movements in sync. Whereas sometimes with, the, say, a, a bench-type movement, you can, you can muscle it and your technique doesn't need to be perfect, you can still do it. And I guess uh, my, my uh, rationale around technique is I don't mind a variation variation in technique as long as it's not going to injure you or someone else <laughs> and that goes with how people run or how people kick a ball but when it comes to lifting if you don't get it right those variations in technique often lead to imbalance or lead to injury yeah and i think you're right about the technique and making sure they're actually when they start learning they're learning it right and progressing through so in saying that so a coach you might have a lower level um, team third 15 got players that want to do it you might have a a thirds in your club rugby, you don't have access to a trainer. These kids aren't necessarily always. They might there might be a gym at the club, but you know there's no one there to really show them. Where where can coaches direct players to go to to try and get a bit of this information, or where can they go themselves to get a bit of this information around that stuff? Over the last couple of years, Coaching Toolbox have had me on board to redesign uh, the ability for any athlete to go onto the Coaching Toolbox and plug in their age. Uh, they can plug in their position, they can plug in the time of the year, and it pumps out a program for them. So there's 146 or 150 exercises that have been filmed, and it goes through everything from uh, mobility work to basic strength exercises, speed and conditioning work as well. So that's, that's pretty cool. You can go on there and plug in your age group, plug in your position, time of the year, and it, and it pumps out your program seven days a week. Jesus, pretty uh, <laughs> pretty flash these days. So I did actually was looking at the Coaching Toolbox website last night, so I know it's uh, coachingtoolbox.co.nz for those that want to go and have a look at it and, and check out those programs. Uh, so that's awesome. So now we're into season. How much, how much 
conditioning, how much training should the extras off the field, should these kids be doing? I think the first trap is we don't have to fall into volume to achieve fitness. I think there's uh, a lot of things we can do in sort of even five and ten minute blocks in a, in a training session that can create worst ca case scenarios for games. There are things we can do at um, high intensity and that are game specific that are very easy now to integrate into your coaching sessions. And for me, uh, a really simple philosophy I, I, I take into my sessions is if you make it fun, uh, the athletes want to do it more often, so that, that gives you your frequency. If you make it competitive, that will often increase your intensity because you generally run faster when someone's chasing you. <laughs> and it's just making sure you get the timing right. And, you, and you're trying to, uh, at the end of the day, make sure that the core roles of playing in those different positions still exist. So yes, conditioning is important, but performing your core roles as a scrummager, as a line-out lifter, um, a, a halfback for passing, they are still the most fundamental things to our game. So you've got to have your core skills and you've got to be conditioned. So you don't, don't get caught up in going for that, that hour run in season. Uh, try and find good resources around how can I spend five or ten minutes on getting fitter and it might be diverting to uh, or benchmarking yourself. Like it's a very common test now called the Bronco test that very common place in, in rugby circles. And to explain that quickly, you start on the, on the try line, you go out to the 20 and back. You go out to the 40 and back, out to the 60 and back for a total of five repetitions. And as a, as a ballpark, you've got um, Blackfern's, oh, actually the two captains of our women's programs now, Gossie and uh, Les uh, Elder, Les Ketu, uh, they're both running sub fives for that test. So I would, I would uh, challenge any club rugby player out there to have a crack at that. And if they're running sub fives and keeping up those two Blackfern's captains, they're doing pretty well. But even that's a, a sort of a, a five minute activity that's, pretty relevant to rugby and it's a good it's a good way to, if you've got five minutes after a training session to get a bit of a top up have a crack at that yeah no definitely and i i actually had a player come up to me at my club training uh last week and say oh i've just done i just did five minutes 40 on my broncos you know how did that compete and i was like oh you might want to keep doing them but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's uh the bronco is a good one that you know players can go and just just test themselves and measure themselves sort of as they progress through the season. So I guess for a coach, I know old school it used to be, all right, get on the corner, and we're you know, doing the old Henny Mowers or Henny Millers or however yeah. they used to say it, I hated them. But you know, you're running corner to corner, you never touch the ball for half your fitness sessions where there's certainly a shift now in, in training fitness, isn't there? Yeah, look, definitely. And I think perfect example, mate, what you've just given there, it's uh, generally speaking, there'll be a lot of athletes play rugby that actually don't like running. <laughs> so it's, the, the ball becomes a distraction. Yeah. And I don't know how many pre-seasons I've been to where uh, they'll say, like, off you go, run around the field. And all of a sudden you've got the, the young 17-year-old fullback who's just finished high school or thereabouts, and he's all of a sudden 100 metres ahead of the guy who's been at the club for 15 years and he's an extra 30 kilos heavier than that, that young whippet. And he's at the back of the pack and the young whippet's got his head up and he's laughing and having a great day in the sun. And you've got your prop at the back of the pack whose head's down, his body position's poor and he's just not loving life. Yeah. So there's little things we can do in, in that pre-season that can, can change your uh, interaction between your players. It can change your attitude towards the training. And there are things like, rather than making run around the field, make them run to the 50 and back and, and do, that, do that sort of... Uh, four times 
and, and, and accumulate a couple hundred metres and then run around. And what that does is it keeps people closer together. They're running back and forth past each other. They're looking at each other in the eye. There's interaction between the players. There's a bit more encouragement going on. Have a break after you've done four of those. Do a little uh, game of keepaways or picking in the middle and then go back and do it again. So you're creating that element of uh, the skills component, but you're creating that closeness in your team. And you'll often find by having that little break in between and not running around the field, the intensity is higher. And, the, and the, the, like I say, the interaction between players is higher. So you're not getting the guy with his head looking at the ground with a poor body position anymore. You've got a guy looking up to see where the other players are around him. And he doesn't feel like he's so far removed from the group that he, he loses the enthusiasm to do it. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, if you're not, like you say, if you're not going to be doing your fitness by playing a game and keeping everyone involved, if it is just, you know, a little bit of sprinting and running, trying to, like I said, even it up. I just did a training the other day where you had to run out to the cones, but the front rowers' cones were a bit shorter than the loose Perfect. forwards, and loose forwards were a bit shorter than the backs. So it felt like everyone was kind of getting back to the, the finish line around the same time because. Let's be honest, we shouldn't expect our props to be running <laughs> the same as our, our wingers, should we? No, and that 100%, mate. And I think that, that's a, a good example where that co competition aspect we talked about, the creating intensity is there. So if you can give a, a realistic target and goal to the, the different positions in your team, we're not a one-size-fits-all approach. And if you give that, the, both athletes a realistic target, they can still beat each other, you'll create that intensity. Yeah, for sure. And I think if you've lucky enough to have a trainer i guess old school was always go off go off and you're with the trainer now and then you, now you're with the coach where nowadays it's got to be more integrated so like i said doing a short sharp uh, uh running session and then chucking them into a, a drill where they're testing their skills and doing that under under fatigue and that's certainly going to get the the most benefit for for the players isn't it yeah and i think my mindset around that is sometimes we have to be not under fatigue learning new skills okay so we want to give you yourself the opportunity and chance to learn a new skill when you're not under pressure and fatigue but once you've learnt it the only way to really expose that skill to see if it's it's fully ingrained and autonomous is to put it under pressure and fatigue so pressure can happen in any number of ways you either reduce the, sp the space that an athlete has uh, or the time the athlete has uh, you add more players to a drill um, you, you create um, small-sided games and, and activities where there is a winner and a loser um, or you put them under some level of fatigue and we know even from the referee's point of view that when they've done multiple back-to-back -back sprints when their heart rate's over sort of 170 180 beats they're more likely to make a incorrect decision or a no decision and that's what we're trying to how we're training our referees now we put him into those those worst case scenarios and then getting them to go back and review footage and we're doing that in training so we're, a good uh, exercise that Glenn Jackson and uh, myself ran at the Sanzar camp this year is we had them doing a, a cardio-based activity and then randomly called out their pods of three so that the referee and the AR come to the sideline and they watched on an iPad uh, a random event. And it could have been a horse race, it could have been a netball game, but they had to then describe that back to their ARs who weren't with them at the time, what they saw. And that is relative and well, sorry relevant to how they uh, act in a game. They've got to convey a message back to AR and get on the same page. So likewise in a rugby team we can do that. We can create situations where they're having to make decisions under fatigue, they're testing their skills under fatigue and if you do it in such a way that you just do your conditioning and just do skills you won't ever really see that. You won't always have them in a position where they're 
it's game relevant. And that's what we're trying to get out of it, trying to be game relevant. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely the big takeaway from uh, from this stuff around our, the conditioning that coaches are doing in their in their trainings, and it is making it game relevant these days. You know, it's not just running corner to corner; it's you know working those skills while you're under fatigue and 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 making it a game so it's fun and players want to be there and want to do it because. I know that if you make your training just conditioning, just running, those guys won't turn up, will they? No, hundred yeah, percent. No, you bet, mate. And I think you can grow. You can grow a club through a really good pre-season. And if the word gets around town uh, that uh, hey, look, we're we're having a, a good time at pre-season. Yes, it's hard work, but we're they're still talking about it on Wednesday, what they did on on Friday night. Then you, you're halfway there, and you, you need a lot of players to um, to be successful in any club competition. And you don't rely on 15 people anymore. You rely on, on not even 23. You rely on more than that because you know that through the course of a, a season, you rely on the, the, the senior, senior ones to, to be doing their job as well as the Prems. If you're a coach or a referee, then you'll know about Rugby Smart, New Zealand's injury prevention program. But did you know that all the resources like tackle and scrum techniques can be found on rugbysmart.co.nz? It's also time to brush up on how we treat injuries and recognise concussion. Remember, as coaches, it's our job to keep our players safe. Rugby Smart, online and Facebook. So now I just want to move it on to something else that you've been heavily involved with, and that is our Rugby Smart program for those outside New Zealand. That's our, our safety video around um, correct technique. It's, um, it's, it's our resource for our club coaches really to prepare them for the season and to try and be best prepared for you know, what, what can happen around the rugby. And you've been majorly involved uh, with the warm-up part of it. Um, recently, so and that's really what I want to cover off is what what sort of warm ups you know should our coaches who are doing under sevens, under eights, right through to our high school, our club rugby's, you know, how how does warm up level change through these years? So let, let's start down junior junior level. You got your coaching under eights, under nines. How much warm up do these kids need to be doing, and, and you know how important is it? Oh, look, it's, it's, it's massively important from a, a physical but also a, a mental point of view to warm up at the highest level, and we, we know that. But at, a, at the most basic grassroots level in that under eight age, gr age group, it is a way of getting them engaged, taking the opportunity to uh, get them ready to train. And really simple philosophy around this, what we've done with Rugby Smart, is to have the fun factor there. So they need to be playing games. And actually, if you're 18 or or eight or, or 38, we, we like playing games. That's why we play rugby and we enjoy it. So we've, we've got the fun factor, we gamify things. And so in the new Rugby Smart warm-ups, there's a lot of small-sided games, a lot of um, partner games. So we've gamified the warm-ups, which means we create that level of intensity and, and competition. Uh, I guess the, the final part of what we've done with Rugby Smart this time around is we've randomised the warm-ups. And rugby is a random game. You're moving from one activity to the next really sporadically. So we've tried to create a situation where you've got a whole bunch of options as a coach. You can draw on any of those different options during the warm-up for 30 seconds, 90 seconds at a time and move from one thing quickly to the next. And it doesn't become so systematic that the kids get bored. We're not asking them to run from A to B. We're asking them to run from A to D and then back to C. So we're, we're changing the landscape all the time. And what we've found is that it gets the urgency level up 
they, they tend to react a little bit faster when they don't know they've got to go and do something they're already prepared to know what's coming up next. They react a little bit faster. They get better at making decisions. We've tried to get rid of a lot of the equipment. We've tried to reduce those barriers by not having complex setups. A lot of the drills you'll see on the new Rugby Smart site, um, you don't need any, any setup. You don't need cones. Uh, you, you don't need any specialist equipment. You can just get out there and do it on a field. And having the athletes sort of take control of that, so when you tell them to go and do the dog and bone drill, or the scissor rock paper drill, it, they start to understand that they can run it themselves. And it's like anything. Like I've got no interest in, in uh, some subject matter. Like I don't want to be a botanist. It makes no, I don't care what type of, type of rose it is. It looks pretty, but I don't need to understand why or what sort of rose it is. But I love... I love sport and I can remember statistics and who won what game and horse racing is interesting to me. So I, w I remember Melbourne Cup winners, but once it's relevant, I get it. And so what we're trying to do with the, the warm up is make it relevant. And I think a mistake we've probably made in the past is it's all been good in theory. Like we've, we've done the, the butt kicks and the high knees and the, those sort of things. And yes, it's, it's good exercise, but no, the under eight kids, they don't really care. They don't, they don't want to kick themselves in the butt or do the high knees because it's not that fun. Mm. And so we have to try and work out ways of getting those movements into the warm-up and it's sort of warm-up by stealth. <laughs> it's sort of like they need to be warming up without actually knowing they're doing it. And so the, the Rugby Smart warm-up uh, through the cards that we've developed and they're like a, a Uno-sized card, the coach can put together a session plan of, of blue cards, green cards, yellow cards, and that becomes their session plan. And they can take different cards all the time to randomise their warm-up. And in the course of 15 to 16 minutes, they can have a different warm-up every week that's similar but different. It's still going through all the, uh, the functional movement, getting ready to run. Uh, there's a contact element to it now. We know how much uh, awareness there is around concussion these days. So we are slowly introducing uh, neck drills and contact drills into the warm-up at a young age as well. Is, is there a a desired length of time that, you know, say kids, high school, club rugby need to be warming up for? Is there a minimum? You know, what, what is the minimum that these kids need to do to get ready to you know, run fast or to do, you know, some of these sessions? Yeah, you're challenging my memory now, mate, but um, there was some research come out uh, a wee while back. Um, I think under 10 minutes was seen as being ineffective and um, a potential to go from a warm-up to full full noise in that space of time was seen as uh, potentially creating a higher risk of injury. Um, I'm pretty, again, I'm, I'm not 100% sure of my fact here, so it was something over about 12 to 14 minutes was sort of seen as a minimum. We're sitting at about 16 minutes in the current Rugby Smart warm-ups, which I think is a good place to be. And I'd even encourage after that 16 minutes, the next five to be a coach-led activity of integrating a, um, a new skill or introducing a new skill um, into the start of a training session. Match days, if you attend any Super Rugby game or international game where you've got All Blacks or Black Ferns playing, you'll see that the players often come out um, a good half an hour before kickoff, up to sort of 45 minutes, some of them, uh, going through their own, own structures. But when it comes to the actual team warm-up, we're sitting somewhere between 19 and 21 minutes uh, as a warm-up as a team uh, before we go back in the sheds. And that's giving us an opportunity on, on game days to go through uh, some run-catch pass, um, some 
dynamic movement abilities to move into full sprinting. We're going through a um, some units work, whether that's scrums and lineouts or back strikes, and then we're going into a team run, and we're achieving all that inside that sort of 21 minutes. Mm. Do you think that it's another thing where coaches actually need to read the players? Like they might have just come off a really physical, hard game that that Saturday, the players look sore, tired, you know. Is that when you need to look at extending your warm-up and just, just making sure guys are actually loosening up properly? Or yeah, great you know, call. do you just stick to your normal, what you're doing? Yeah, great call. I think um, one thing that we've introduced into the Black Ferns more recently through uh, the physios um, has been the, uh, the, the, the training prep window. So where the athletes... Uh, for 15 minutes prior to even starting, they're going out there and do some doing some rolling. They're doing what's gonna what's it gonna require for them to get ready to even start warming up. Now that's obviously not gonna be that practical to do in a in a club rugby situation. So you you do need to have a read on um, where the players are at, but even more so what your content is for that session. So does your session involve contact? If it does, what can we do in the warm up to start including a contact element? Uh, warming up our necks as an example or if there's no contact and it involves a lot of high speed running how do we use our warm-up to get them ready to sprint so during the course of that warm-up you're, you're looking for those signs is the athlete ready to sprint are they ready for contact uh, do we need more time before we expose them to those things because what we know about uh, soft tissue injury is that when you go from doing nothing to spiking a workload and that can happen over the course of a session or over the course of a, a, a week or a month when you hit those spikes, there's more chance of injury. It's a good observation, mate, that um, the warm-up doesn't need to be generic. It needs to be relevant to your content you're going to have for that session. And as you say, if they've played on um, on Saturday and it's been a late game and you don't know whether they've got through their recovery session because it's a, it's a club team and they, you don't know whether they've done their own recovery on Sunday, then you do have to take some responsibility that on Monday night when you see them that they're probably still going through a recovery mode. And uh, I think recovery is something that we can all do, but we're not always that good at it. So whether it's eating properly, whether it's um, uh, the hydration aspect, whether it's wearing compression garments, they're all things that you, having played the game, you you take as a given and you would do. But at a club level, you're not always sure whether it's been done. But still probably the number one thing around recovery is is still going to be sleep. Sleep is still king. And if they're turning up to you on a, on a Monday and they've had a big night on the Saturday night and haven't done their recovery on a Sunday and they rock up to you Monday after a full day's work, there's a good chance that they're not ready to train. So all you do by going out there and smashing them on a Monday night is probably increase the chances of them getting some sort of soft tissue injury. So having a bit of a longer warm-up, it does make sense. I find these days a lot of us, you know, taking away from those very top-tier teams, a lot of teams are just you know, what's our warm-up? Oh, let's play a game of touch and yep. then into it. You know, those are things we really need to avoid kind of doing, isn't it? Is making sure we are getting a good warm-up and avoiding the possible re-injuring or the injuring of players, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, there's plenty of good touch games you can play at low intensity and, and a good way to, I guess, manage how much intensity is in those games of touch is reducing your field size. The moment you say, right, we're playing full field or across the field and you've only got 15 guys on the field, seven or eight on each team, you know that's going to, at some way, at some point, 
they're going to start sprinting. They're going to start that high intensity volume. So make your field size smaller. Don't give them the opportunity to, to have big gaps. Um, walking touch is a good one, but you know, being competitive, walking turns into jogging, which <laughs> turns into sprinting. Long, does it? <laughs> <laughs> so it's not always the way to do it. Um, but there's 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 ways of uh, managing managing that, and it might be that um, you've only got to you've got to carry the ball in in one hand, and when you get touched, you've got to do a one hand offload. And um, like I say, reducing the field size and having lots of players in the field tends to reduce the amount of uh, accelerations and high speed sprinting they can do. But let's let's not put a line straight through touch. Let's just find ways of we can how we can adapt it that it's going to reduce the intensity. It's uh, a, a great tip, uh, right there. I guess uh, now my other thing around uh, I see a little bit is when we change situations. So you might do your warm up, you do a bit of a handling drill, and then teams will split and they'll go off and the backs or I, I think they just normally do their nails and <laughs> something like that. And then the forwards will go do scrums and lineouts, and then all of a sudden you're you're warming up again for those. Is, is a good quality warm-up going to see a team right through into that or do they need to just be a bit aware of, of warming up for more specific, um, say, contact, scrums, lifting, that sort of stuff? Yeah, awesome. So I think in, in, uh, in the Black Ferns environment, something that the coaches are really good at, and um, I know Glenn Moore will be happy you brought up about doing the nails and stuff because he often talks about <laughs> John Haggett taking his camera so the back's got good quality photos. But... Um, uh, one thing that they do do, both in the backs and forwards, is they have primers. And the primers for the forwards uh, on a line-out session is involving the resistance bands, involve, involving medicine balls, and going through a series of exercises in addition to a regular warm-up. So it's very specific to, to line-out lifting, or whether it's scrummaging, having one-on-one uh, -on -one scrummaging, two-on-two, three-on-three, and slowly building the scrum up. So those priming sort of activities uh, have become um, just second nature, I guess, to, the, to that environment. Uh, likewise, with uh, the backs, they're doing a lot of run-catch pass, so they're, they're working over a period of even three, four, five metres at a time, uh, lots of quick hands drills, uh, lots of short accelerations, and building up to the point where they're going to get value out of their game strikes, they're, and they're, getting, they're building up to being ready to perform at a high level. And as you say, if we go through a team warm-up, we don't always cater well for those individual requirements. My last big question for you, I guess, really is around training is, you know, we're trying to get players to game intensity, um, but is there, what's the danger of overdoing that? Should we be pushing our players to be hitting their 100% heart rate, you know, every Tuesday, Thursday? Do we need to limit it just once a day? You know, how often do you take it to that real high intensity to try and get them, you know, rugby ready, as some people like to think of it? The more conditioned the athlete, the deeper into the week you can train at a higher intensity, mate, I think. I, I, I know that uh, because of the nature of club rugby means that um, some clubs are still training uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights and in a professional environment. Uh, if you're playing Friday, your standard day off has become uh, a Tuesday and a Wednesday depending on sort of uh, who's in charge of the program, but they tend to have a day off midweek. Now, club rugby doesn't sort of lend itself to that, so we sort of do a, a little bit... Um, either end of the day potentially going through to a, to a sad day game. It's, it's something that uh, we need to be super conscious of. And as you, you sort of alluded to in a previous question, on a Monday, they're probably still going through part of their recovery. So that your, your Monday session might, might be just getting them ready to have a quality session Tuesday. And Tuesday might be your, your quality hit out because Thursday is your, your, your clarity and your captain's run, so to speak. 
Um, and then by Friday, you won't often get hold of the athletes, so you're relying on them to maybe go out and doing a bit of their own work on Friday or going to the gym to play on to play on the Saturday. So it's it's not a it's not a straightforward question that's going to blanket approach uh, every level of rugby, but I guess we have to be realistic around what we can achieve in the course of the week with the time that we've got. So maybe a good structure to follow is um, if we can encourage the athlete to do some form of recovery on a Sunday, whether that's going out for a walk on the beach, whether that's going for a ride or going to a pool session, uh, something that they, they do do something the next day rather than nothing. Uh, come Monday, you take the approach that you're still going through some of that recovery element. It's maybe a good chance to, I guess, address some of the learnings from the game on Saturday, uh, go through at a low speed and get some clarity, go through your, your, your next game that's ahead of you and use your Monday to not try and bite off too much and just try and do things at a slightly lower pace. Uh, on Tuesday, then you can up the intensity and, uh, and start doing some of that work you've learnt on Monday night to operate at a higher level. Uh, Wednesday, you might say, well, let's just take this as our, as our day off. And Thursday, we're going to go through things that are at a reasonable clip now. And we're going to have some contact because we need to be ready to do this on Saturday. And doing that little bit of contact work on the, on the Thursday, it still gives you the impacts that you, you need to condition the body, but enough time to recover to go out there and, and do it on the, on the Saturday. That might be a a reasonably loose framework for a club team as to maybe how can they a- approach something that is achievable. Yeah, that's um, some excellent stuff there and certainly some uh, good takeaways that we've had from uh, this conversation. So I guess just to wrap it up, you know, w- what are the online resources that, that people can go have a little look at? Yes, yeah, so the Coaching Toolbox, uh, again, offers that ability for a player to, to go on there, plug in their age, uh, the stage of the year and their position, and it'll, it'll flush you out a... Uh, a seven day of the week program um, and the the rugby smart youtube channel now is is releasing all those uh, rugby smart warm-up drills for kids and i think there's 46 of those that we've released so far uh, with the intention that we're going to do another um, another rollout soon for for teenagers uh, one thing that will be will be common amongst those is we're still going to keep that theme of having fun and uh, creating intensity through competition uh, but they're, they're probably two of the best channels, mate, to get on the Rugby, uh, Rugby Smart site, look for those warm-up drills and get on the coaching toolbox for a program. Uh, excellent. So uh, go out there, have a look, get some ideas. I think um, we've certainly covered off some uh, interesting things that their coaches could then look at it, how they are integrating their, their training, their conditioning, uh, their warm-ups, and then also their, their strength and conditioning stuff off the field as well. So, Jamie, mate, we really appreciate you coming in. And as people would have learned, you've had a, a massive impact, I think, on New Zealand rugby and where it is now. And, um, mate, long may it continue because you're doing some great stuff there and uh, hopefully the game continues. So, once again, thanks for coming along and, and appreciate uh, all this wisdom you've shared with us. No, mate, little thanks for having me much. All right, well, that's our uh, Coaching Toolbox podcast for today. I hope you enjoyed that, got some good stuff out of it. Go chase up those resources, like I said, and um, let's enjoy our coaching and let, let's our, let our players enjoy their uh, their trainings as much as they enjoy their games. All right, have a good one.